0: I want to welcome you uh, to Redeemer, especially if you are a guest. And it's our custom at Redeemer that we remain standing for the reading of God's Word, and I'm going to invite you to make your way back to your seats. And you can find our passage printed for you in your bulletin from Romans chapter 6. And this morning, as you find your way to that passage, it's one thing for us to say that we believe in the resurrection. I'm sure that many of you, perhaps most, do, but what does that mean? How does that translate into our actual lives? What's the difference Easter should make? That's the question that I want us to explore this morning. And there's no better passage for us to answer and ask that question from Romans 6. The first 11 verses, let us give our attention to God's holy word. Let us read beginning in verse 1. What then shall we say then? We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be with us now as we not only. Remember the resurrection, but consider what it means to practice its reality as a matter of our everyday life, to be as those who are alive with Christ. Do that now, we pray, by the ministry of Your Spirit and the power and truth of Your Word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Again, we're used to it by now, at least somewhat. Every Easter we... Um, ha- have this annual onslaught of skepticism about the historicity of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and specifically the resurrection, right? And uh, the, the um, popular media, the news media, the secular academy um, begin to raise the questions, right, that then um, lead us to believe as Christians that… Faith and trust and confidence in the resurrection is withering away. The truth is, that's not the truth. Study after study reveals that belief in the literal resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ by Americans is both persistent and widespread. Um, That's especially true for people in the church, despite changing views on on all number of uh, questions in the church. belief in the resurrection is consistent. Um, a survey back in 2008 and nine surveyed evangelicals and Catholics and even mainline Protestants and, and some 90%, 80% affirmed their conviction in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that resurrection as being fundamental to their faith and trust in the Lord. A Rasmussen report just from last year confirms the stickiness of that commitment reporting more broadly not just among people in the church but among Americans. Two out of three believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He was raised from the dead on the third day after His crucifixion. Now in one sense, that's good news. That means perhaps most of you here today already believe in the historicity of this event which we are marking on this day but also which we mark on every Sunday. That doesn't mean that all of you believe. But perhaps most of you believe in the resurrection. It's also a reminder not only of it happening but of its significance. The resurrection isn't a pious idea invented by His delusional disciples but in fact, has all the marks of an historical uh, event. It's the resurrection that best explains why we're here. You see, the problem with not believing the resurrection is we have to account for Christianity. And here's the thing, Christians who were disillusioned by the crucifixion of their Lord wouldn't have invented it. It's the resurrection that accounts for Christians. Christians didn't create the resurrection. The resurrection created Christians. It's the resurrection that best explains why we don't refer to Jesus as just a teacher or just a philosopher or just a moralist. He is the resurrected Lord, the the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. God made flesh who took upon Himself our death and was raised from the grave that He might be raised for our salvation. But even before we dig into the significance of this event, I do like to speak about why we believe in it, the, those things that are worth pointing out every Easter as we think about the importance of the historicity of this event. There are a few that I want to point out to you this morning. First of all, the testimony of the resurrection was both early and could have easily been disputed if it were not true, with only a few years of the resurrection. The Bible tells us there were numerous witnesses to the resurrected Christ. In fact, as many as 500 saw Him on one occasion, and many of whom were still alive when the New Testament documents were being written and circulated, any one of whom could have easily debunked the story, and yet the story was not debunked. Secondly, the way in which the story is framed has all the markers of it being true and not made up because, first of all, the first witnesses to the resurrection were women. That's a, not just a historical detail, it's curious in that women's testimony would not have been admitted in a court of law in the ancient world. That They were of such low regard in the ancient Near East that their testimony would have not have been accepted. And were the disciples worried about making a convincing case, surely they would have avoided that part of the story, or they never would have invented that part of the story. But that that part of the story is so prominent, occurring not just in Luke, but also Matthew and Mark and John, means it must have happened that way. And here's the thing, that those two things come together, the empty tomb and the eyewitness accounts, they make the case all the more compelling. After all, think about it, if there had been an empty tomb without witnesses, well, the story could have easily been described as a grave robbery. Right? Resurrection wouldn't have been the explanation for that. The empty tomb would have meant someone had stolen the body. There were no witnesses on the other hand, if there were witnesses, without an, easy, an empty tomb, it could have easily been um, described as the pious, delusional reflections of His disciples who were wishing for His return. But here's the thing. If a body could have been produced, it would have been produced, but there was no body. The Jews desperately wanted to produce a body, but they didn't have one. And if it were a fabrication, these stories would have felt more contrived. But again, they have all of the details of a real, live, historical account. And so whatever we believe about the resurrection, a few things have to be accounted for. First of all, the tomb was empty and a body could not be produced. And secondly, there were hundreds of people... Hundreds of people who claim to have been with the resurrected Christ, none of which readily denied their story, and when taken together, both of these make the case for the resurrection compelling. It also means that if you believe in the resurrection, you don't have your head buried in the proverbial sand. You're not an anti-intellectual to believe in the resurrection. You're on sound footing. But again, you believe this. Most of you believe in the resurrection. And so I want to this morning explore a related question, and that is, does this make a difference in my life? What difference should the resurrection make? After all, I wonder how many of us have connected the dots of the resurrection to my behaviors, my loves, my desires, my hopes, how I lead my everyday life. I'm guessing that most of us do a poor job at connecting those dots. When we move on from Easter, we put it in our rearview mirror, and the practical relevance of Easter... It is virtually negligent, negligible. As those who believe in the resurrection, th- that's great, yet God calls us to more than belief. He calls us to practice. As those who have been united to Jesus Christ by faith, the resurrection, the Bible tells us, didn't just happen to Him. The Bible tells us the resurrection happened to us. As those who are in Christ by faith, then we are called to practice the newness that Jesus brought with Him out of the grave. And that's what Paul, the Apostle, calls us to here in Romans chapter 6. For the Apostle, a belief in the resurrection that did not correspond to a dramatically changed life was a contradiction of the highest order. There was no greater contradiction than for someone to say, I believe in the resurrection and yet whose life remained unchanged. And so for Paul, it meant more than just believing. We have to practice... The reality of this truth. What does it mean for us to practice resurrection? That's the question that I want us to answer this morning. And the first the way that we do that is by remembering that the death Jesus died, according to Paul, was our death too. The death Jesus died was ours too. We have to recognize our participation in the Lord Jesus at the center of the Christian understanding of our life in Christ is our union with Him. We are mysteriously and wonderfully by faith bound to Him. Paul will teach the church of the Colossians that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. That in this miraculous and wonderful way, we are bound up with Christ. And so for that reason, Christ was acting on our behalf. And so when He was on the cross, according to Paul, we were too. As He was dying on the cross, in an important sense, we were dying on the cross. And two important things flow forth from that truth. In Jesus' death comes our death to sin. That's what he says here in verse 2, we died to sin. He's answering that question that the Romans were asking about, hey, this this idea of grace is a great opportunity for us. If I have grace, then I can sin all the more. Paul's answer to that question clarifies for the Romans why that is an utter contradiction, because we have died to that former power, he says. How can we who have died to sin live in it any longer? May it never be. On account of our union with Christ, the Christian has experienced this radical and irreparable breach with the power and guilt of sin. We have died to it. Paul further clarifies what he means down in verse 7. He says that we've been set free from sin. And that verb can also be translated to justify, to, to, to free us, to deliver us, to remove the indictment of sin, to be delivered from its guilt. No longer does sin indict us. Paul will say later in Romans chapter eight, "There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." So, so Paul's saying two things here when he says that, that we've died to sin; we've died both to its guilt and to its power. Making the case all the clearer is he says in verse six that the old self has died with Christ. Paul's saying that we actually died on the cross with the Lord Jesus Christ. That old self, verse 6, was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. When Paul refers to the old self, he's referring to that old command and control center. The place where the seat of sin's rebellion rests most strongly within us. He's saying that 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 command center of sin has. Has been killed and broken, rendered inserviceable. And so in Christ, we've been delivered from that enslaving power. It can no longer have ultimate dominion over our life. So significant is this, this breach with sin. Paul says that our baptism s- seals it to us, it represents that, that transaction as it were. Look what he says in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. Mm-hmm. And we often think of the waters of baptism as representing that which washes away our sin, and to be sure that's true. But the Apostle Paul says that in the waters of our baptism, sin is actually drowned and overwhelmed and killed." This is significant. Paul is saying that in Jesus Christ, sin has been dealt the death blow. Its indictment of guilt, its power over us has been overwhelmed in and through Jesus Christ. A couple of implications that flow from that. First of all, sin had to be killed, right? I think one of the most notorious and persistent confusions about the Christian life is that Christianity is a key for you to deal with your sin. That Christianity is a way for me to fix my life if I will follow the right commandments, read the right authors, have the right experiences, do the right things. Go through the right motions. We have our list. They change from year to year and church to church. But still, the the idea is that that I'm going to get on this regimen of dealing with my sin. We think that through more effort, more experiences, more knowledge, we will deal with this problem, this sin problem. But that's not the message of Christianity. Christianity is not teaching me to be a sin manager, a sin slayer, a sin hunter. The Bible says, in fact, I can't do that. The Bible says, I am powerless to do that. That there's no amount of my effort or my knowledge or any number of experiences that can dislodge the power of sin and remove its guilt from my life. Jesus had to do that for me. And in fact, that's what Paul is saying happened. On the cross, He killed sin. And in killing sin, He killed that old self. He killed that old self that I was. So that I'm not two dueling persons within my life um, uh, seeking to gain mastery for my being. I'm not Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I'm not old Tom and new Tom in the same person who's going to show up today. According to the resurrection and the crucifixion of Christ, that old person has been finally put to death. Yes, the tendencies and habits can remain with me and will remain with me until I'm fully resurrected, but that old self is is killed in a final way. I'm not the same person I was before I came to Christ. And for that reason, remaining in sin, living in sin, being indifferent to sin is utterly inconsistent with who I am in Christ. What is consistent is the struggle, actually. The, the one who is fighting against sin is consistent with that new person in Jesus Christ, but the complacency, the indifference, the callousness with which we disobey God, such things are, are not consistent with the gospel. And so often we think that, well, you know, I need to clean up my life. I need to get my life together. I need to deal with sin more seriously. Friend, that's not the first step. The first step is I need to consider myself dead to sin. And in fact, if I've never heard that truth and if I've never drank that one in, it's likely that you're not yet a Christian. And you're setting yourself to be on the path of sin management. And you'll never win that battle. The first step is realizing that in the crucifixion God has slain the enemy. He has done the work that I could not do for myself. Paul says that the old man, the old self, the power and guilt of sin has finally been put to death. If you know that truth, hallelujah. That's the first way we practice the resurrection. If that truth is new to you, hallelujah, you can start practicing the resurrection and remembering that Christ has put the old man to death. The second way that we practice the resurrection is by realizing that the new life Jesus entered into is new life that we can enter into too. Like Jesus didn't stay in the grave, we don't stay in the grave. Like Jesus came forth from the dead, Paul says that we are alive in Christ. Look what he says here in verse 8, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. In Jesus Christ, not only have we lost the old self, we've become a new self. Paul writes to the church in Corinth that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new self. The old self is gone, the new self has come. We have become new in Christ Jesus. Now it's true, we we await the greatest fulfillment of that newness. The greatest fulfillment of that newness is coming when we are resurrected as Jesus Himself is, so we will be. He says in verse 5, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His on that day our spirits will match our bodies. That we will be truly and finally transformed. It will be the consummation of all of God's promises. We will finally see Him as He is and we will be as He is. That that will be a glorious day. But Paul is saying that we don't have to wait for that resurrection, our physical resurrection, for us to begin to walk in the reality of the resurrection. He says that we can walk in newness now. Look what he says at the end of verse 4, that we were buried in Christ in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We might walk in newness now. To practice resurrection means that we can lead different lives now. I love what Tom Wright says, you see it in your reflections. The Messiah's resurrection means that those who are in the Messiah now stand and must walk on resurrection ground. We do not wait until the final bodily resurrection before beginning to walk in newness of life. We don't have to experience the fullness of the resurrection to begin to experience its realness. We may not be fully new, but we are really new in Christ. And so that means that we can begin to act like resurrection life. Think of all the ways that ought to shape and form our relationships. All the ways that ought to form and shape our worship. All the ways that ought to form and shape our inquiry after the Lord our God. That newness isn't dependent on our physical resurrection, but according to Paul, it's dependent on His because it happened to Him, it has begun to happen to us. Now, How many of you think about your life every day as one who has been resurrected with Jesus? You should. Every day, you should think about your life as having been resurrected with Christ. Think about the implications of that. Resurrection means I don't have to despair in my struggle against sin. And all of us have besetting challenges in our lives. There are things, events, experiences that we've endured that mark us. There are habits and addictive patterns. There are behaviors that we regret and feel as though we cannot get free from its power but if we are new in Christ, Paul says that those cycles are broken. We can change. We can grow. Old patterns can be put to death. Addictive cycles can be broken. Hopelessness does not have to define us. Yes, sanctification is slow, but it is not pointless. We're confident that what God begins in the resurrection, He will finish. What God has already begun in your life, He will bring to completion. We don't have to despair in our struggle. We don't have to be defined by sin. We don't have to be defined by death. You know, one of the ways that death works into our lives is through accusation. We have accusers in our lives. And even our own conscience sometimes accuses us. You don't measure up. haven't done enough. Wow, couldn't you be better at that? I can't believe that happened to you. Man, I wish you could be like so-and-so. Well, why are you still struggling like that? You, you know the voice of the accuser. That might be from outside of your life. It might be from within your own heart. And yet the resurrection means that I'm no longer to think of myself in terms of those accusations. I don't care where they come from. It could be a spouse or a parent. It could be a person at work. It could be your own conscience fighting against you. But Paul is saying that we are no longer defined in terms of of that death, that that sin that accuses us and says that we are set free because we are new in Christ. John Calvin said it well. He said that for every look that we take at our sin, we should take ten looks at Christ. And yet we do it often backwards right. We take ten looks at our sin for every look at Jesus. No wonder we're we're defined by our struggle and our sin and death. To practice the resurrection means to, to, to practice this awareness of our newness in the Lord. And for that reason, we ought to be empowered in our fight against sin. Again, not in a triumphalistic way, but but in this confident way that God is at work with us as He defeated sin and death on the cross and out of the grave. So He is at work in me. I don't have to despair. I don't have to give up hope. It's also a check, too, when I might be tempted to have a laissez-faire attitude about it. Sort of this cavalier indifference, if I ever find myself thinking that way, you know, Jesus Christ is a part of my life, we're in trouble. If we're resurrected in Christ, Jesus is our life. He is the center. We don't make Him a part of our lives. We get caught up in His life coming out of the grave. That's what our union with Him means. As He went into the grave, so we did. And as He came out of the grave, so we did. And for that reason, we can confidently and powerfully engage our battle with sin. And if that is not something we are interested in, you're not a Christian. And this is an opportunity for you to come unto Christ. Because that's the only way we have new life. That's the only way we enter into life with Christ. Not because we're going to do something, but because He has done this. This thing, His crucifixion and His resurrection. To practice resurrection means that we walk in newness now. If this sounds significant to you, it is. That's the problem, isn't it? The resurrection rests too inconsequentially upon us. The claims of the Christian faith are too insignificant to us. We go on with our day as though nothing else has happened. And yet with the resurrection, God began an entirely new world of grace that He is inviting us to walk in it. I love the story of a woman who wrote Dr. Billy Graham asking for his perspective about heaven's future glory and the the future that Jesus Christ had purchased for us when He came out of the grave. This is what she wrote to Dr. Graham. She said, how can we be happy in heaven if it's going to be filled with people that I don't necessarily like? In in fact, she goes on, there are several people in our church who are really hard to get along with, and I just can't envision heaven being filled with those people. Dr. Graham was very gracious in his response. This is how he responded. Heaven, the Bible says, will be a place of supreme happiness, and I can assure you, you don't need to worry about this problem. And the reason why is because in heaven all of the faults, all of the foibles, all of the, the mistakes of these individuals will be corrected. These individuals will, will be healed. Those conflicts will be overcome. Their sins and all of their selfish ways will be, well, transformed. These people will be exactly as God wants them to be. But then he said, there's more. There's another reason why people like this won't bother you in heaven, and it's this, you will be changed. You will be changed. You won't be the same person that you are right now. All of your shortcomings and all of your imperfections and all of your sins will be gone. And so you will rejoice in the presence of those that you formerly disliked. Hallelujah you know, Dr. Graham is right. In heaven, at Jesus' glorious return, all things will be made new and and there will be this shalom that we have longed for and yet to experience. But I wish he had gone further. I wish he had said this, that we don't have to wait until heaven to experience that newness. It can begin now. I think most of us are kind of saying, well, I'm waiting till heaven. That's when it will happen for me. Paul says it's happened. It's happening. We can begin to walk in the newness of uh, of Christ's resurrection right now because two things have happened. His death was our death. His resurrection was our resurrection. That old self is dead. And He invites us to a new self. When we put our faith and trust in the Jesus Christ, it, it, it is as though we have walked out of the grave with Him. And we begin an entirely new life. We become beacons of that resurrection life and how we serve and minister and love and hope and bear with and understand and struggle and go forth. All of those things bear witness to the resurrection that comes in Jesus Christ. And so the last thing I want you to do when you walk out of here today is say, I really believe in the resurrection. I'm glad you believe in the resurrection. But I want you to practice it. I want us to be a community of faith that practices the reality of the resurrection so that we're noted not just for what we believe but what we do, how we live, and how we love. For for people to say, those people are alive with something I want to be alive with. And the answer to that question is they are alive with Christ. The the only way for us to enter into that truth is for us to be reminded of these truths. That we have died in Christ. That we've been raised up with Christ. And if we do that, we will walk in newness of life. And if we do that, we will also know the Easter difference. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your holy Word We thank You that it is the carrier of this momentous news of Jesus' death and His resurrection. And that You have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. You have killed sin, its guilt and its power. And You have been resurrected to new life that You might give to us new life. Help us to walk in its truth. Help us to be a resurrected people holding forth the hope of the resurrection to our community and city, nation and world. We ask that you would do this all in the name of your Son and in the power of your spirit. Amen. Parents, let me remind you that your children will be